Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, Angry Planet listeners. This is Matthew here up at the top. Jason is back from vacation, just got back. I am still a little bit on my back, uh, but I'm going to be fine. We're going to be get back to things as normal next week. Jason's already got the next guest lined up. Got a big list of people from uh, producer Kevin O'Dell, who uh, is kind of the secret sauce behind the show, if you don't know. He kind of is amazing at picking topics and knowing exactly who we should get on to talk to. So I want to shout out Kevin. He doesn't get, doesn't come on the show very often, but doesn't get enough praise for the stuff he does in the background, which is a lot of like question suggestion and guest suggestion. Uh, but again, we're going to do another set of reruns this week. It'll be the last set before we get back to normal going again, deep, deep into the angry planet slash war college archive to a time when we were at Reuters, uh, this first one is is very funny because it's very Reuters. Jason introduces the Moscow bureau chief, who then introduces the guest. But why is it of interest now? It is of interest now because it's a gentleman talking about the beginning of Russia's war in Ukraine. Um, we forget, I think, sometimes that all this started back in 2014. It is older, much older than the current situation. It's been brewing for a long time. So we're going to get a kind of a view of that. The other episode I'm going to play, we're going to do two kind of crammed together here, um, is our first episode with a gentleman we've had on a couple times, Peter Pomerantsev, um, talking about Russian disinformation. And I think it's very interesting because for a long time in this country, we were a bit obsessed with Russian disinformation. I certainly was. We had this idea that they were masters of it. Um, you know, there was obviously the conspiracy theories during the 2016 election that Russia had bought off or swayed uh, our election in some way. I think a lot of that stuff is pretty overblown. Um, obviously, they spent some money, but not much and, and, and weren't super good at it, I don't think. But regardless, they were perceived as master manipulators. Well, now, you know, a few months into this war in Ukraine, they can't control their own soldiers posting cringe on Telegram, uh, posting videos of them firing light machine guns at surface-to-air missile emplacements and just blowing themselves up. Uh, not exactly master manipulators, I would say. Um, if you're subscribing to the Substack, I'm going to have a little bit more to say about this there. But, uh, you know, I've been talking a long time here at the beginning. So let's go ahead and get into it. When Ukraine pulled itself apart in 2014, 
The world was confused over who exactly was doing the pulling. Was the takeover of Luhansk, Donetsk, and other regional capitals all part of a Russian plan, or just a local movement? Today, on a special edition of War College, we speak with Antony Butts. He was in Donetsk when it all went down, and has a very interesting take on exactly what happened. You're listening to War College, a weekly discussion of a world in conflict focusing on the stories behind the front lines. Here's your host, Jason Fields. Hello and welcome to a special edition of War College. I'm Reuters opinion editor Jason Fields, and today I'm joined by Tom Barton of Reuters Moscow Bureau. And Tom is also going to introduce our guest. So would you be so kind? Of course. Anthony Butts is an independent journalist and documentary maker specializing in assignments in the former Soviet Union. He's covered the effects of Soviet nuclear testing in Kazakhstan, the disaster of Hurricane Haiyan in the Philippines, and has spent weeks filming inside the separatist-declared Donetsk People's Republic in eastern Ukraine. His documentary on the subject, DIY Country, is going to be shown by the French TV channel Arte and also screened at the Hot Docs Film Festival in Toronto between April the 28th and May the 8th. Anthony, welcome. Uh, welcome. Thank you for having me here. If we could just start with Donetsk, when were you there filming? So I turned up in Donetsk about 10 days after they'd um, captured the administration building in Donetsk. I think that that was um, uh, beginning of April 2014. And this was after Russia had already taken over Crimea, right? Yeah, I mean, th things were moving very fast at that point. There'd been, obviously, the revolution in Kiev uh, two months before, and then Russia had invaded Crimea uh, shortly after that, and sort of spearheaded by its sort of special forces taking over buildings, uh, pretending to be locals. And then, you know, it seemed like a similar kind of thing was going down in the sort of Donbass at that period of time, you know, buildings sort of falling to uh, you know, mixed bag of uh, soldiers, soldier types and, uh, and locals. And when I sort of turned up in the region, I went to Slavyansk first and filming there was impossible. It was just far too dangerous. But then Donetsk was taken over and that, that seemed to be a sort of a, a different kettle of fish. It was almost like an entirely separate project. The building wasn't taken over by uh, gunmen. Uh, like elsewhere, it was taken over by um, uh, local activists. And that was kind of very interesting because it was far more open. It seemed a, a kind of a, a different project, kind of put the civilian face on things. And it was very difficult to disaggregate whether it was really a, uh, planned by Russia or was something kind of like very freewheeling and, and fluid from the grassroots uh, pro-Russian movement. Can you just describe Donetsk? To uh, us, how many people live there? Russian speaking, I assume. Yeah, so um, Donetsk is the uh, the capital of Donbass, which is the sort of eastern Ukrainian region. It's sort of famous for its uh, coal and uh, industry. Uh, just under a, a million people live there. It's almost entirely Russian speaking. It doesn't necessarily mean what people's sympathies are. My guess is that people were wanting to return to the Soviet Union. Donetsk was kind of quite empty until the Soviet Union came along. And they sort of just uh, obviously used it as a big industrial power base, and lots of mines, lots of smelters and, and stuff like that. So pe people had this sort of very kind of like uh, industrial, um, you know, stereotypical worker identity. 
suddenly, you know, 23 years ago, they find themselves part of Ukraine. And this really leaves the, the people quite lost at sea. Some of them uh, take up the Ukrainian identity, some of them the Russian identity, but most of them still feel in, in the Soviet Union. And over those years, Ukraine didn't really serve these people very well because of the corruption. The oligarchs took over all the mines and industry, milked them for all its worth, left it in ruins. And so people were kind of very bitter at what independence had done for them because of the oligarchy. And they saw the Soviet Union as, you know, better times. And simply because Russia, under Putin, it's kind of making itself out like it owns the Soviet Union brand. So people associated Russia's sort of oil wealth and so on with the Soviet Union brand and thought that somehow joining Russia, being part of Russia, is going to make their lives better. Russia is going to bring back the Soviet Union. It's going to give them some of that nice oil wealth and restart their industry Whereas they felt that Ukraine, with its pro-Western stance and um, association with the IMF and sort of structural adjustment programs and all all that stuff, was just going to leave the whole uh, region much worse off than it was even back then. Their identity was very fluid. So, uh... do you perhaps feel that uh, obviously the the big question that the the world asks is about Russian involvement, and obviously Russia continues to deny that it it ever had its actual official forces there in eastern Ukraine. But do you feel that without whoever these mysterious uh, people that were coming and, and helping the local rebels, do you feel that if they hadn't stepped in, and many people assume they are Russian, they were Russian, that the local uh, elites or groups simply didn't have the organisation, the skill to pull it off, and the whole thing was going to collapse unless there was outside help. Is, is that a picture that you saw that stood up uh, by the evidence? I, I, I think that Russia was involved somehow, but I don't think it was as direct as um, as everyone's thinking. I think it's more, at least at least in Donetsk, I think somebody was behind the scenes in placing Pushil in there. But I have a feeling that that was done through oligarchs. Now, who told the oligarchs to do that? Who get, who put them up to it? I don't know. Um, but R- Russia did play a vital role psychologically, which is the most important thing. Uh, Russia had moved its army to, with, uh, to within... Um, you know, the borders of, of Kharkov and Donetsk uh, area. So it could have invaded at any time and the Ukrainian army would have been completely flattened. So people really felt that Russia was behind them. The Crimean precedent also gave people the, the idea that uh, whatever they do, they're doing so with relative uh, impunity because, as in they can rebel because no one's going to stop them. The police who could have put down the uprising in Donetsk relatively easily, just did nothing. There were guys with knives, um, holding knives in their hands, and policemen um, w- w- would not do anything. Uh, and they, these guys were just walking around the streets. The, and I spoke to the police, and they said they were just waiting to see who would win. So if the police had been confident that, that they would be punished if they by the Ukrainian government if they uh, weren't neutral, I think things would be very different. And that is down to the threat of Russia in that, in, in creating this atmosphere of impunity. In addition, Russia also had a very important role in the formation of the identity uh, and steering the identity of the republic. In Donetsk, it was initially a, mostly a working class uh, revolution. 
people who were in the mines, in the factories, who felt they had got nothing out of Ukraine because of the corruption and oligarchy of all these years, saw in this revolution a chance to upend things and sort of seize control. This was very quickly steered by the Russian media into a uprising against fascism, not against oligarchs, because, of course, Russia doesn't want to have... My theory is that Russia doesn't want to have a working-class revolution uh, in its backyard, right? So it wanted to use the mobilization that that sort of all these um, angry miners uh, had sort of brought about and turn it into that these miners had risen up spontaneously to uh, fight fascism. This was a sort of a very important thing because when uh, Odessa happened, when uh, something like 30, 40 people were... Uh, pro-Russians were killed in a um, an arson attack in Odessa. There was a massive psychological change uh, that I observed in Donetsk. It really was like night and day. The le- people really felt their identity was under threat. The people who had stood up for the referendum in Odessa, like like they were standing up for a referendum in Donetsk, they had just been. Um, uh, but do, do you know what I mean? It was. Um, it wasn't that they were scared that the same thing would happen to them it it wasn't that it was more like a kind of a moral outrage backed by the fact that they could get away with it so they 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 could like let loose their feelings it was it was they were looking for evidence that there really were fascists and russian tv spun the uh what happened in odessa so much so that it, it looked like um on tv a as if uh, Ukrainian government-backed neo-Nazis had uh, incinerated uh, 35 pregnant women. Uh, and that's what people were telling me in um, in the administration building. And that they felt that this was like proof positive, that there really were fascists. And after this period, the mobilization just like was like picked up so fast. You know, political scientists talk about mobilization uh, before civil war as, as a bit like a kind of like an S. It starts off slowly builds up a big head of steam and rises really, really fast and it sort of tailors off when all the would-be rebels have sort of joined up. And it, that was the moment when uh, when everything really started going south for Ukraine after Odessa because Russia had given them the psychological reason to to fight. Some of this actually does go back to World War II. That, I mean, the propaganda does. That even though Ukraine was actually probably more people died in Ukraine than anywhere else at the hands of the Nazis, they were able to form a Ukrainian Nazi brigade, uh, if I remember right. And people are still, they still have that narrative in their heads. The Russians do anyway. Whether or not it's a false narrative, and, and clearly it seems to largely be false, it's definitely very useful for propaganda. Yeah, I mean, indeed, it's, Unfortunately, it, there's always an element of truth in this stuff. And um, there are as many of the pro-Russian activists I met, you know, would, would tell me that, you know, there's a video you can find on YouTube of um, people in Lvov dressed up as SS uh, officers going, foyer, foyer, as they're um, reburying uh, SS soldiers. Th- th- this kind of stuff, I mean, of course, these, these guys are minority, uh, but they are inflated to so it becomes in people's minds that this is the entirety of the enemy they're fighting and in essence it becomes a bit like a self-fulfilling prophecy because people start talking about media wars identities get polarized and more and more people become uh uh, radicalized uh, on both sides so you saw the rise of um the idar battalion the donbass battalion um 
some of which uh, had openly neo-Nazi people inside them. And this to sort of, um, in any society, have these kind of people. And the media really brought them to the fore. Yeah, we've talked about the, the early days of it. Um, I think, though, I mean, certainly outside Russia, very few people believe that Russian forces were never involved, certainly when it came to bigger battles later in the east of Ukraine. And I know you were based in Donetsk, but there was a lot you you saw, a lot you heard, a lot of people you talked to. How, if you can answer this, how great an involvement do you think from what you saw and heard was there from the Russian military? And uh, do you think that there, again, that seems to be the great shadow hanging over the Ukrainian forces there, that they are worried if they push too hard, there would just be an outright invasion? Is that Was that a realistic prospect as well, do you feel? Okay, so on May the 16th, I think, I was kind of, well, I wouldn't say kidnapped, but I, I was sort of held by a, um, a militia commander who fought for the Donetsk People's Republic. And after he released me, we were um, talking about what the uh, scale of the Russian involvement was. And he was saying, look, the Russians have provided, uh, there, there was a guy that came over. He was saying that, that uh, we're all going to be involved in a project called Project Retribution, uh, where we're going to go all the way to Lvov. And the idea is, is that the Ukrainian army is going to be shelling civilians the whole way because they're so incompetent, which will just radicalize the population and will just ride that wave of radicalization due to civilian casualties all the way to Kiev and, and beyond. I think that was um, a fantasy spun to uh, get people like him involved. And But he was saying that there were weapons and training that was going on uh, in this base that was just uh, near Lugansk, uh, on, right on the border. Um, and that was uh, Russians who were training them and uh, R- Russian weaponry coming over. Uh, I was actually, I got permission, and Mo- Moskovoy, by the way, was in that base. I, I got permission to go to that base. On the very day I was going to go, the, um, the Ukrainian Air Force uh, bombed it. So, uh, I, I might, well, and uh, this militia commander I was with, he was injured in that raid. So I was kind of lucky I didn't go. The, the, the point being that mid-May, the, the Russians had already set up some training uh, center. There were there was an active moving of weaponry uh, across the border. Now, uh, whether this was the Russian army that was directly doing this, whether this was Russian volunteers, uh, you know, I, I don't really know. But for sure, it can't. You know, it must have had the bless the, the blessing of uh, of the Russian border guards or, or elements in the Russian forces for that to happen at, at a minimum. So, I mean, that that's like uh, two years ago, right? This kind of trickling in of weaponry that, that, came, that was coming in at that time really sort of uh, was important in the sense that it started giving uh, people guns because there weren't many guns that people had uh, in Donetsk at the time. And it was also at this time when Russian volunteers started coming over. And really, they, they were Russian volunteers. Uh, I know a lot talked about the, the Russian army, but all, all the guys I met were, were volunteers, whether they were paid for by the Russian government, it's it's you know, not not clear. But the, the the Russian army was important, I think, as later on when it looked like several times that, that the next People's Republic was losing because the Ukrainians were, were much stronger than they anticipated. And so the Russian army came in to save the day at least uh, several times. And that's what really why it, the thing was a stalemate, because the the next People's Republic was never allowed to really grow beyond its initial sort of borders. 
and yeah, it just became trench warfare. Can we talk just a little bit about the situation now? Who controls the net? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. Um, so, in my opinion, you've got people like Pushilin, Zakharchenko, and so on. They, they notionally control Donetsk, but really the, the true masters are the Russians. For instance, my character in the film, Boris Litvinov, who is the head of the Communist Party, was uh, kind of threatened by Alexander Borodai, who was the prime minister of um, Donetsk People's Republic. Uh, and he, he's a Russian consultant, right, from Moscow. So, he basically said, look, this is a recorded phone call. You can sort of listen to it on the internet. It's quite entertaining. He said, look, um, Boris, don't run the Communist Party. Stop all your activities, you know, because I've got to know that you're on our side. And Boris was kind of like tried, tried to bluff Borodai by saying, you know, like people are going to have another revolution. I'm, I am barely holding them back from the barricades. And, uh, well, this was, this was kind of like uh, bullshitting from Boris's part because I turned up to a couple of his, um, sort of like little rallies where he was trying to get communists involved to try to put in some kind of, uh, br- bring the, uh, the government of the next people's republic back to its sort of working class origins. Uh, kind of nobody really turned up apart from a, a few old women. And then Boris was then pushed out of the uh, local elections. So, there seems to be a lot of, uh, of evidence that Russia is really pulling the strings here using, uh, push people like Pushilin as puppets and insiders that I met with in Donetsk People's Republic were saying that the way it works is Russia provides the military guarantee. Also, the economy is also completely dependent on Russian aid. So Russian can always withhold the aid. And that will, that will mean there's civil unrest inside the republics. This is their sort of lever over them. Plus also because they allow the, the officials to skim off some of that aid, that's a way for keeping them sweet. So, yeah, I mean, R- R- Russia controls it through mechanisms like that. It's also sort of taking over the military structures as well. I know that your film was very much focused on the sort of the, the personalities, the sort of the, the human side of the revolution but i mean i think that's you know that all revolutions are actually in at the end of the day not made up of sort of faceless forces they're made up of people aren't they so that's that's actually very a unique viewpoint yeah yeah and that's really something i wanted to get across because when you watch the film it's not like you really learn that much about ukraine and um, geopolitics but i think you do learn a lot about what it's like to be in a revolution the kind of people that turn up the kind of forces that drive it and the sort of ultimate destiny of, of revolutionaries. Like I think uh, was it Camus once said that every revolutionary is destined to be either a heretic or an oppressor. So that, that certainly was the case. <laughs> <laughs> and I just was so struck by how very Russian it looked, you know, just the way everyone was dressed, the, casual profanity you know i mean it's just such a interesting looking group uh, i mean they look i guess like what they are they look like people who came out of factories or mines or you know i just thought it was fascinating this there really is a there really is a civilizational difference between the type of people uh in donbass that are for uh, the Soviet Union for Russia, that, because they reject, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of people out of time, right? They, they, they reject the way that, that Ukraine is trying to, the hipsters and, and, uh, the, uh, in, um, in Kiev and the Maidan, all people who want no corruption, uh, and so on, because they, they, 
it's, it's completely different kind of people, really. Uh, all, all this kind of stuff about gay Europa um, and, and that thing, it's just, it's just a sort of an expression of the fact that they really consider themselves a different kind of people. And this was really what the Kremlin were tapping into, uh, that kind of um, dissatisfaction and anger. Russia helped a lot by providing uh, key military and logistical support and ideological support and so on. But they gave voice to grievances that were already there. And one mustn't forget that Ukraine deserves a significant amount of blame in this whole crisis for basically failing to deal with these kind of deep-set deep set grievances. That's why you'll find now that there's a lot of public support still for the rebel movement, even though they know that they were taken over, they were, in many ways they were fooled and so on. They're still proud that they stood up for, you know, for, I guess I mean, it's, it sounds a bit pathetic, but for their dignity, you know. Uh, these were things that Ukraine hadn't addressed and it, it dealt, you know, it, it sort of paid the price really in the kind of, you know, in the sort of anarchy of, uh, of geopolitics for that. And it's also, it's very logical. I mean, it seems to fit the facts. So it's hard to, you know, if you listen to it from the outside and, I mean, just an American point of view, I mean, I couldn't be further from the events. You know, it's hard to defend, right? I mean, uh, yes, they are getting screwed. But, you know, maybe uh, maybe it doesn't help to do what they're doing. But you know what? This, this, is, this is very, very philosophically interesting because if you don't stand up and fight against these big forces, right? Because, you know, it's a cap- capitalism is, is about conflict, right? If you don't fight, then you don't get anywhere. But they, they had tried. It's not as if it's the first time that people in, in Ukraine had sort of tried to fight these big forces of corruption and so on. Uh, each time they'd done that, they'd been screwed over. I remember going to Donetsk about five years ago and doing a story on um, kidney transplants. P- p- people were selling their kidneys in Donetsk because the, the corrupt policemen had, um, were, were framing their relatives and threatening to not let them be in school, go to university and so on. And so they were having to sell their kidneys to raise the cash to, to bribe the police. This is, if you don't control this kind of stuff, then people will seek uh, more violent forms of, of getting what they want, and they'll obviously get manipulated uh, along the way. This is no different from what Trump is doing. And where, whether you blame Trump as the baddie, who, who is responsible for that? For, for what's happening in Russia? Yeah, Trump is. There'll always be somebody like Hitler or Trump or somebody who will capitalize in on this uh, this grievance, but. Ultimately, you've also got to blame the people and the system that let it get to that state as well. And when you ignore that, when you just pin the blame on Russia or Trump or whatever, you are doing a massive disservice to these people because they will. it's not like they're going to not be pissed off. They're going to carry on being pissed off. And at one point, they will rebel. Whether that's morally right or wrong to rebel, you know what? I'm kind of feeling as though... If you ignore people, then they have a moral right to rebel because they're literally, you know, society has got to be fair. I think uh, we'll have to end it there. But thank you so much for joining us. And it's fascinating to find out exactly how this came about. All right, Angry Planet listeners, we're going to pause there for a break. We'll be back after these messages with a brand new episode from the past. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. All right, Angry Planet listeners, thank you for sticking around for this uh, ancient two-stack. Uh, here we, without further ado, here is Peter Palmarensev. The media in Russia is lively, often entertaining, and largely state-controlled. Still, an illusion of freedom remains key to the Kremlin's grip on a country that spans 11 time zones. Today on War College, we look at how Vladimir Putin crafts his message for both internal and external consumption. You're listening to War College, a weekly discussion of a world in conflict focusing on the stories behind the front lines. Here's your host, Jason Fields. Hello, and welcome to War College. I'm Reuters Opinion Editor Jason Fields. And I'm Matthew Galt, Contributing Editor at War is Boring. Today, we're speaking with Peter Pomerantsev, a journalist and former Russian TV producer. His book, Nothing is True and Everything is Possible, which, by the way, is a fantastic title, explores the Kremlin's weaponization of information. So thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So, Peter, I want to open with a, a quote from your book and then a question. Um, so you say that TV is the only force that can unify and rule and bind this country, referring to Russia. Um, it's the central mechanism of a new type of authoritarianism, one far subtler than the 20th century strains. Uh, can you explain to us what this new type of author- authoritarianism is and how is it more subtle than its predecessors? Sure. I mean, um, the big difference between, uh, well, there's two or three big differences between contemporary authoritarian isms. And it's not just Russia. I mean, there's several, there's several uh, ones we could focus on. Um, I thought one Russian professor put it very well to me. He said, like, uh, if Stalin was 75% violence and 25% propaganda, Putin is 75% propaganda and 25% violence. You know, in a, in a world where there's just so many more information mechanisms, um, new authoritarians can, can use them to a much more sophisticated degree. I mean, the way it was more sophisticated, um, and it is shifting now, was that um, if the Soviets would basically suppress any kind of dissent uh, and try to hammer home sort of one big message, Putin's TVocracy um, was much more uh, was much more cunning. Um, it would allow sort of uh, pockets of freedom. It would allow um, liberals to exist, uh, but then it would frame and manipulate them in a certain way uh, to make them 
at the end of the day, strengthen Putin and the Kremlin. I mean, it's sort of in, in, in a world there are so many media resources. You can't censor everything. You can't suppress everything, but you can be subtle and sort of play it. I mean, so I'll give you a few examples. So you do have talk shows in Russia. I mean, if you sort of debating shows, political debating shows, they're actually very, very good. Um, but they're centrally scripted. So there's a sort of fake left-wing party, which is created in the Kremlin and run by the Kremlin. And there's a fake right-wing party, which is sort of created and run by the Kremlin. And they kind of debate with each other. Both of them are so absurd, they make Putin look sensible by contrast. Um, or, for example, uh, there is, the, you know, the, uh, one of the institutions I worked for in Russia was something called Snob Media, um, which was run by created by Russia's richest man. And it was meant to be like a, the Russian version of the New Yorker. Um, plus, you know, there's going to be a TV channel which never materialized, but there was a sort of publishing house and there was a, a website, um, a sort of, a, sort of a fa- an elite Facebook, um, sort of a closed Facebook. Um, and anyway, so it was, it, was, um, it was dedicated to creating a new type of Russian, what we called global Russians. And you could t- tell everyone how awful Putin was, uh, Masha Gessen, you know, the great Masha Gessen, you know, I'm sure you know, was one of the editors, you know, it was, it was, it was you know, uh, uh, an arc, a uh, Noah's arc of liberalism in many ways. But at the same time, we were all really aware when we worked there that, my God, you know, this is being funded by Russia's richest man. There's no way he couldn't have done this without the Kremlin's kind of, you know, permission. Um, and that was kind of the point. So, I mean, the point was to give liberals a place to breathe and and sort of vent their frustrations. But at the same time, you know, it was called snob. Uh, it was funded by Russia's richest man. The Kremlin could easily go, look at these liberals, look at their global Russianness, look at the lifestyle they promote. I mean, the, their politics liberal and the lifestyle they promote sort of holidays in Europe, and, which is inaccessible to, 99, to the vast majority of Russians. So the Kremlin could go, oh, look, at, look at our liberal oppositions funded by um, these sort of like um, the westernized spoiled oligarchs and and sure enough the guy who, who funded it then became the pseudo liberal candidate at the uh, elections uh, he got a very respectful 14 percent soaked up the liberal vote and then promptly disappeared from the political scene he kind of done his job so it's a much much subtler and much more kind of um, system than just like you know stupid old soviets uh, rule which looked to suppress dissent and thus created a really sort of like strong anti-communist movement. So who's behind it? Who's thinking in such a, I don't know, a sophisticated, smart way? Well, I mean, look, it developed. You know, we can look at the way it developed through the 90s. Actually, the first people who let it happen were Democrats. So so in the mid-1990s, it looked as if uh, Yeltsin, uh, who was a more kind of pro-Western president, would lose the elections to the communists. He'd really become social democrats by then. Um, and so all the oligarchs got together because they were really scared of this. Um, and in order to save democracy, they hired a sort of a new type of political consultant called uh, a political technologist, sort of a, a 21st century propagandist, to um, create sort of, uh, sort of pseudo scare stories and help rig the vote and help rig the election. And it's quite funny, it was a class of liberal political consultants who actually made this happen. Uh, a lot of them regret it now. A lot of them say openly that was the moment when Russia lost it in '96. So in order to save democracy, we used undemocratic means. But with time, kind of one of this class of political consultants emerged as, um, you know, as the most powerful one, a guy called Vladislav Surkov, um, who's very much, you know, a tight guy's kind of figure. He was a bohemian and a dissident, well, kind of dissident in Soviet times, studied theater, then became a PR guy, sponsors modern art festivals, 
writes postmodern novels, which are okay about cynical PR men. Um, and uh, he kind of, he calls himself one of the authors of the system. I mean, he talks about it openly and he ran it for a while. He ran TV and political parties. But I wouldn't say it's one person. It's a very, you know, it's a big state. It's a very fluid, reactive state. Sokol came to symbolize it in many ways. Um, I don't think anyone has total control. Not even Putin himself? Well, Putin doesn't... Um, Oh, in that sense, you mean, as in like, is there, yeah, Putin is the arbiter of all the decisions. I mean, nobody's, the system isn't, um, uh, it, it is a postmodern system that way. You know, it can sort of like work in various ways and like somebody in the provinces can be running their own mini projects or somebody in the oil and gas thing will be running their own mini projects. It's quite flexible. Uh, it's not actually very rigid that way. Uh, all right. We've, you've, we've said the word postmodern a couple times here. Um, and... You're, in your book, you say a postmodern dictatorship is one that uses language and the institutions of dis democratic capitalism for authoritarian ends. And you kind of talk about how this model of Kremlin propaganda takes kind of takes the West, digests it, and then perverts it. Uh, so could you explain how how the Kremlin does this? How do they use the Western messages and, and twist them on television? And what and, and what exactly is do you mean by a postmodern dictatorship? Well, sure. So, so the key ideas of sort of postmodernity are the idea of the you know what Baudrillard called the simulacra, yeah, a thing which looks like something but actually isn't it itself, uh, and something quite different. Uh, simulacra is maybe the most overused word in Russian politics. All, all the analysts use it. So we have pseudo political parties, pseudo independent media. It's all pseudo. It all looks. Free, but actually, once you get into it, it works in completely different ways. This was one of the great things of Kacha ben Kidza, the, uh, the great uh, Georgian reformer, maybe one of the most effective post-Soviet reformers. He was like, we live, and he's quite Baudrillard quite a lot, he like, we live in a world where nothing is what it seems. I mean, the police do not are not actually police. They're, they're involved in racketeering. Uh, the tax agency are not the tax agency. All the signs you see are something else. Um, so that's what we mean. Uh, also, we mean by the loss uh, the lack of any one coherent narrative, many, 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 many little narratives and the lack of a stable um, social uh, individuality and role. But just coming back to this idea of simulacra, because that's the most coherent one when we talk about policy. So take elections in Russia. Russia has, you know, elections with different political parties uh, running uh, against each other and competing. And, you know, there are debates on TV. And, and you know, if you were to just tune into it, you would think, Oh, my God, it looks just like America. However, everybody knows who's going to win a priori. Everyone knows that they will be rigged. And there's a great essay by Stephen Holmes about this, the New York University professor, that uh, it's actually a ritual. It's actually a ritual where you go and pretend to sort of uh, uh, to take part in the serious vote. Everyone knows exactly what's going to happen. It's the, the faking is quite transparent. The state is saying we are so powerful, we can fake these results. And, um, uh, you know, the, the whole point is for the state to show its power. So even though it's authoritarian power, so through the ritual of a democratic uh, vote, or it looks like a democratic vote, you're actually reinforcing an authoritarian model. So that's that's one, I think, very, very good example of it. And it's sort of a, uh, you know, a fairly pointed one, because elections is always what we sort of associate with um, uh, democracy. So that's actually taken from the West in a way, right? I mean, that's, uh, I mean, the Western idea of, and ideal of democracy. And you talk about how the U.S. is used. Foreign media 
is woven into the Kremlin's version of the media. Right, you talk about Larry King quite a bit in your book and his RT show. Yeah, well, not quite a bit. I, mean, I think Larry King has two lines in my book, but there are very important two lines. I, I apologize. You talk about Larry <laughs> King as an example in your book. Well, Larry, look, so, I mean, here we're talking about RT, which is Larry King had a show on RT, which is the Kremlin's foreign uh, broadcaster. It's not, it's, not, it's not in Russian. It's in English, Spanish, Arabic, a few other languages, I think. So RT is very interesting, again, for the same reason. So RT, when you switch it on, looks just like CNN or the BBC. I mean, down to the music, you know, it's like it's very, very similar. Um, the presentation, everything. So switching on, go, oh, look, it's just another sort of like you know, international TV news channel. Um, and uh, its slogan is very interesting. The slogan is question more, which is a really clever slogan because, you know, that's very much the Western ideal of what journalism should be all about. I don't know if you saw their advertising in Washington, D.C. Um, it was sort of Andy Tony Blair preaching before, really nicely sort of drawn posters, Tony Blair preaching before the Iraq war. And, you know, below it says, this is what you get as the Iraq war if you don't have a second opinion. And then Colin Powell uh, as well. Um, which is, you know, how can you possibly disagree with, with that, with that idea? That's, you know, the essence of, um, uh, of Western, uh, the Western ideal of journalism is to question more and question power and have a second opinion. But then RT used that ideal to kind of do something very, very interesting. They, they sort of, well, basically they destroy, um, well, they destroy sort of the line between sort of information and disinformation. Once you sort of get rid of the idea that there's any kind of uh, sort of, you know, objective truth out there, which is, you know, there probably isn't, uh, they kind of take that to its extreme by saying, well, then it's fine for us to do disinformation. Or they'll um, have uh, experts who aren't, uh, who just literally just nutcases taken off the street a lot of the time, sort of a neo-Nazi uh, from Germany will suddenly be key German expert on uh, European affairs, or somebody from Linda LaRouche's organization will suddenly be key American experts on world development. Because once you get rid of, you know, once you take the very noble idea of questioning more, of undermining sort of hegemonic truth, and you take it to its absolute extreme, you can basically say there's no difference between a Cambridge University professor and a freak. Um, and so they take that, so it's strange, they take a very, very, you know, healthy idea, and they take it to kind of like uh, a place where it's, it starts to undermine um, sort of its own, uh, its, its, its own ideals. Um, so again, a little bit like election, you take elections and you push them to a place which is the opposite of their original meaning. Um, so, so that's why RT is very interesting. And, and Larry King, God bless his soul and God bless his conscience, um, had a show on this. Um, and it was, I really liked the advert for it because it was, um, you know, it was Larry King going, come watch my new show on RT. And then it was like all the words that we associate with good journalism, I don't know, um, you know, truth seeking, um, uh, research, uh, you know, bravery, all these words sort of going very, 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 very fast across the screen. And just visually, it was, it was, it was uh, sort of taking all the cliches of Western journalism and sort of putting them, them through this kind of uh, uh, fast forward uh, effect, which, which in the end sort of, um, sort of makes them feel almost meaningless. You know, they just become just words. And, and it was it always seemed to be like an, a big FU towards Western journalism. It was saying, like, we can take your cliches and we can destroy them from inside. Um, I don't know if they meant that. But, you know, sometimes adver an advert says something deeper than, than, than it's the people who created it and it intended it. I, I have this feeling that RT, uh, or at least RT.com, used to be a little bit more subtle. 
Um, and the reason I say this is a couple of years ago, um, I don't know if you remember, there was a, a American, at least alleged American spy who was a fairly low grade, uh, official in the uh, Moscow embassy, uh, who was wearing, uh, at least according to the RTV footage, uh, a bad wig when he was caught. I think that was true. Yeah. Everyone covered that. Well, it's, it was, it was absolutely fascinating though, because, uh, of course they broke the story and, um, yeah, I remember sitting in a newsroom, people wondering, Oh, wow. Who is this RT? Um, and I think it, at least at first, it was kind of subtle and people didn't really recognize it as Kremlin propaganda. And, uh, I, I don't, I don't know. When I watched, I watched, uh, RTV not very long ago. It was right before the Russians stepped in and started bombing in Syria. And they were talking about the U.S. bombing in Syria. And on the television channel, one thing I, I noticed is exactly what you were talking about. Um, I mean, they did seem to have experts off the street and they spoke about when they were talking about the U.S. bombing of ISIS, they referred to it very specifically as bombing civilians in syria um and i I don't know was it more subtle i mean was it always uh sort of this level um i mean they had some prominent anchors walk out a couple of years ago saying things had gone too far you know it actually started as a soft pr project quite classic soft pr project just doing fluffy stuff about russia and then nobody wanted that uh and they kind of changed in 2008 during the georgian war um, but they go through peaks and troughs, you know what I mean? My, my sense is that maybe they've really decided to zero in on the kind of, on the viewer they feel isn't, um, catered for in the U S which is, um, the kind of fringe left and fringe right viewer. Um, I think before maybe they were going for a slightly more, um, you know, maybe PBS sort of viewer. So I don't know, but listen, they occasionally do really good stories. I mean, they, they have a couple of. You know, it's 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 all mixed in. This is the whole point. You do a good one, then you do a crazy one. You do a good one, do a crazy one. Um, so so even now you could switch it on, see a perfectly good story. So um, I, I, my sense is that after Crimea, it got really really uh, really really crass during the war in Ukraine. That's when they were told off by Ofcom, the British regulator. And like in the US, we have regulators in the UK, and they've been told off I don't know four or five times, which is you know a lot um, for just you know telling lies basically um uh so i i don't know it's, it's i mean i think it, it, look, it's a tool of russian foreign policy so if the foreign policy is very sharp at the moment at that moment they'll really go for it if the foreign policy is being friendly with the u.s maybe they'll change their approach over the next couple of months because now russia and the u.s are bosom buddies again uh all right i have a, I have a question for you peter you 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 actually worked in Russian TV. You were a TV producer. How overt is the control from your bosses? Like when you wanted to tell a story that they didn't necessarily want to tell, would they just, would they, like, how did, how did that work? How did they kind of steer the ship? Well, listen, I worked for an entertainment channel because mm -hmm. when I arrived, when I started working on Russian channels, which is 2006 to 2010, it was already kind of dodgy to work for a news channel. So I was working for, you know, my, my background is in entertainment. Uh, so I worked for a channel which brought the sitcom to Russia and brought stand-up comedy to Russia and brought some reality shows to Russia and all that kind of stuff. Um, there was very, I mean, they were actually, because they were an entertainment channel, they could do really risque stuff with their comedy. I mean, they did, um, uh, they did a, a, 
the Russian version of a British sketch show called Little Britain, where they could do really risque stuff without ever naming names. I mean, there would be stuff about, you know, there was a regular sketch about Russia's most corrupt, uh, Russia's only uncorrupt traffic cop. Um, and he's like, you know, he refuses to take any bribes. And, like, he lives in penury and his wife is always, he must become corrupt like everyone else. Uh, and there was a sketch about uh, a hospital where, like, you know, there's a room where you, take, you pay a bribe. And, uh, you know, you get this incredible sort of like, uh, sort of, you get a, a, incredible healthcare and prostitutes and everything. And then next door is the, the normal one where, you know, just the, the sort of, uh, national health, uh, thing and the people just yeah. dying horribly. Well, I, I, I gotta say though, that speaking as an American here, um, I don't know about the NHS. That is actually literally the case. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, I think uh, we, we know the whole world knows about America's uh, healthcare due to, due, due to the um, excellent, objective, and um, uh, analytical reporting of Michael Moore. Um, but, um, <laughs> uh, but, but the difference in Russia is you, you just give a bribe to the doctor. You just put it in his pocket. You don't. You don't pay it to an institution. It's not. Um, you know they haven't got to the point where ca- where corruption becomes market capitalism. It's just corruption still. Oh, um, but maybe they'll mature into that. Actually, one of the big arguments for fighting corruption is just why don't you just institutionalize it? You know, if 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 just just make it exactly have it like in the US, have it done officially. But um, uh, so anyway, so actually being an entertainment channel, they could do a lot of. Um, uh, a lot of really risque stuff, but I I also worked in their documentary department, and I one of the things they wanted to do was stories about teens because it was kind of youth orientated. And when I started doing stories about teens, I just found a lot of the stories had a political edge because you know it was about teens being beaten up by the cops, which is a real problem. Teens, you know, being sent to the army as national service in Ukraine, and and you know they, they, there's a terrible problem with hazing in Russia, you know, like really bad. I mean, a lot of suicides story about suicides among conscripts. Um, and these shows rated well because they were about people's lives and people enjoyed them and young kids enjoyed them. But suddenly that that made it political. And when I pitched the next one, they were like, mm, go and do one about footballers' wives. You know? So it's it's everyone kind of decides for themselves and everyone senses where the lines are. Um, and, and it's much more a case of self-censorship in that sense rather than anything else. So people just instinctively know that they've gone too far. You were just talking about the the compulsory or the the military service. That was another really interesting part of your book. You wrote it could be said that if a year in the army is the overt process that molds young Russians, a far more powerful bond with the system is created by the rituals of avoiding military service. And I wanted to see if you would speak to like explain to us what those rituals of avoidance are and how they shape those people's relationship with the state. Sure, sure. I mean, I always find this fascinating as well. It's a great question. Um, so, you know, compulsory national military service is one of the, you know, basic ways that many states build loyalty and identity. So Israel, clearly, probably the most obvious example of a state that's, you know, people really become Israeli when they're in the army. So Russia has compulsory national service. Certainly in Soviet times, going through the army was a big, big deal and a big part of you. Really, you know, in a, in a sense, being broken by the state, you know, that's where you were kind of broken in and humiliated a lot and you became a good Soviet citizen. Nowadays, there's still compulsory national service, but everyone who can gets out of it. Um, but some people, if you're studying, you know, if you're a student at a university, that's one way of getting out. Um, and actually, there's all these sort of, again, the simulacra, there's all these pseudo sort of higher educational institutions that get fund- founded that you just pay some money and say you're studying there and that gets you off. But not everyone can, you know, that's a lot of money. You know, imagine like just buying a college degree. It's, it's going to be pretty expensive. So a lot of people can't afford that. So what do they have to do? 
they have to pretend, they have to get like a, a letter from a hospital saying that they, they're physically unfit, you know, that they, you know, they've got asthma or diabetes or whatever. And um, that basically involves the, both the young person and their parent um, essentially uh, kind of being sucked into a world of corruption, if, even if they never wanted to be corrupt. Because you firstly have got to find a doctor who's going to give you this false uh, piece of paper. Um, you've got to find it. You've got to pay him money. Then it's not, I mean, this is why Russia is so much fun. The doctor won't just give it to you. You still have to come into hospital and spend a week there pretending to be really ill. So already a young person of 18 is already learning how to sort of like to survive in a society. He's going to fake it. Uh, a bit like later when he grows up, he's going to pretend to vote. And everybody knows that they're pretending, but everyone kind of plays along because this is the way societies were formed over, over, over a long period of time. So you lie there pretending to be ill. Then uh, you get out. Then you still have to go to uh, the military place where they, they will test you again. You give them the letter. They'll test you again. But, you know, they, they go along with it as well. You usually have to give another bribe there. And so, you know, to get out of military service, you've gone through this whole kind of uh, um, uh, sort of labyrinth of faking it and bribery and corruption, which actually makes you the ideal you know, uh, citizen of contemporary Russia, because uh, all your life you're going to be sort of, you know, faking your voting in elections, uh, faking your taxes, you know, you're part of this game, but where you're actually very dependent on the state, because once you faked it, firstly, psychologically, you're really, you know, you're a little bit like that. Uh, corruption is always a great way, always corrupts the person who's, who's you know, the bottom of it, giving the bribe as well as the person demanding it. Um, uh, and and you kind of learn to think it's normal. You know, if, you, if, if you're already faking it from the age of 18, then you, you know, it's no big deal to then kind of like go and pretend that uh, you're, you know, voting in a real election or pretend you're paying your taxes when you're not. We had a guest uh, just a couple of weeks ago, Mark Galliotti, who was talking about the fact that Russian military conscription is only for one year and that, in fact, it's very, very hard to train anyone and then turn them into good soldiers. And he said, basically, you have like three months of someone you can actually use on a battlefield uh, before they're gone. So I guess what you're saying would actually almost explain that. It's about breaking people in. Um, Mark is, is the world's biggest expert on the Russian military. I mean, I, I, uh, so, so I actually have no idea what happened on the battlefield. Um, but it would it definitely explain that it's much more about breaking people in. But the idea is um, uh, very much to, you know, socialize people, make them part of, you know, make them part of the state rather than make them into great soldiers. All right, Peter. What do you see? Are the, the what are the weaknesses of this of this system that you've described, and are the cracks kind of showing? The weaknesses is that it's got nothing to do with reality. You know, it's a pseudo. Everything is fake. You know, uh, uh, there's there's Putin is like this Toreador, You know, this bullfighter with this red cape of corruption and propaganda that, through which he avoids reality. Um, and that's what everyone in Russia says, like, when will reality catch up with Russia? Because this, like, world of, you know, truth is actually quite a useful thing. You know, there, there's a reason democracies allegedly try to stick to, you know, a real process. It makes us, you know, face up to the problems in the country. Elections make us sort of, like, checks uh, checks how well um, the administrations actually work and so on and so forth. And, and so a system based on pretense and um, fakery at one point should hit the iceberg of reality. I'm really mixing my metaphors here. Um, every time Putin comes near reality, he finds a way out there so far. So, you know, in 2012, there were mass protests calling for real democracy. And, you know, 
a real modernization plan, and he looked in trouble. And he invented a fake war. He invented fake fascists in Ukraine and, you know, this kind of complete and utter illusion, but it was efficient to get his ratings back up. Um, now, um, you know, that's kind of expanded into the war with ISIS. Um, I mean, ISIS, of course, is a very real enemy and does need to be dealt with. Um, uh, but again, he's found a new story, a new narrative that distracts from, from the sad reality of the way Russian economy and society is going. There is no domestic policy anymore on Russian TV. I did, I worked on an EU project recently about, you know, Russian TV and, and, and we did like a, uh, a, uh, an analysis of, um, a content analysis of, of, of ro- the news and stories on Russian news and current affairs. And there's hardly anything about social problems. It's all, when we were doing it, it was Ukraine. It was all, you know, the conspiracy, the global conspiracy against Russia, a civil war in Ukraine. The whole world is going to, you know, going to hell. Only Putin can save it. It's like this movie um, about a world disintegrating into chaos with Putin as a sort of Batman type hero to save it. Um, not a mention of sort of like, you know, hospitals or anything like that. Um, so um, every time we think he's going to hit reality, he thinks of something bigger and better. And there's still a lot of big stories that he can think of. Um, he can still do a big missile crisis somewhere. There was the Arctic War, which they were playing with. So they can go on and on and on. Um, it's when he runs out of stories. But he seems, he's, he's, he's like Shahrazad of the Arabian Nights. You know, thinks of another story. As soon as you know, we think he's going to get executed, no, he pulls another one out of the hat. Uh, which is very much based on TV, which comes back to our first thing. Like TV is obviously sort of the the uh, you know satanic machine that cooks up all these new stories. They don't need to be that related to reality. I mean, with ISIS, they are related to reality. In Ukraine, it was you know hallucinated a war into reality. Um, so they just need two good stories. Um, so there you go. He's like a huge TV producer, a huge entertainment TV producer. Like like I was a tiny entertainment TV producer in Russia. He's like the great entertainment TV producer. Well, that sounds like. Uh... I mean, a terrific point to stop. I don't think we're going to get uh, much better than that. Um, so thank you very, very much, Peter, for joining us. Oh, and let me mention the name of the book again. Again, I think the, the title's fantastic. The book is Nothing is True and Everything is Possible. So uh, check it out. That's all for this week, Angry Planet listeners. As always, Angry Planet is me, Matthew Galt, Jason Fields, and Kevin O'Dell. It's created by myself and Jason Fields. If you like us, if you really like us, go to angryplanetpod.com or angryplanet.substack.com. Kick us $9 a month. It helps keep the show going. It really, really does. You get commercial-free versions of the mainline episodes as well as the occasional article and bonus episodes as they come out. We will be back next week with another conversation about conflict on an angry planet. Everyone's where they should be. Jason's back. I'm going to be ambulatory again. We'll talk to you next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. 
That's stamps.com code program.